from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. This is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is Pete Muntean of CNN, a pilot and certified flight instructor. Pete has covered the aviation beat since joining CNN three years ago. Pete, welcome to Update One. Thanks for having me, Adam. Before we talk about the opportunities and challenges associated with your beat, let's begin with you and your passion for aviation. I understand your exposure to flight started very early in life thanks to your parents, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm really lucky to have grown up in aviation, and not a lot of people have that kind of upbringing, but... Um, I was kind of flying in little airplanes in utero, and both my parents were um, pilots sort of recreationally, and then it became their professions. And so I had a lot of access to airplanes and pilots growing up, and I just loved it. And so, you know, I didn't always necessarily think I was going to be a, a journalist covering aviation, but I knew I always loved being around airplanes and flying. And when I was a teen, my, my aviation interest really grew, and I became a pilot and I've remained in it, and, and actually just a couple weeks ago, I got my multi-engine commercial license, which is a, a fun, new, exciting development, and I've been instructing some. So I love aviation more than anything. It's hard for me to shut up about it. <laughs> my dad is a private pilot, and I certainly spent a lot of time in my childhood around small aircraft. Happy memories for me, but really a mix for you, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, sadly, my mom, when I was a teenager, we, we traveled um, together as a, a pair. She was an airshow pilot, um, an aerobatic flight instructor. That was sort of her main job. She was sort of dipping her toe into airshow flying, which is relatively risky. And um, I traveled the country with her and announced for her airshows. That's kind of how I sort of got interested in broadcasting too. And um, she was killed in an accident um, in October of 2006. I just turned 18. I'd um, taken my first solo flight a couple months before, actually. And that really sort of threw things for a loop for me. When I was a teenager and kind of like forming what I was going to do professionally, I always had an interest in journalism and communications, and I was in the high school newspaper, and I loved that, and I felt like I sort of found a home there. But when my mom got killed, I just didn't really know um, which way was up. I thought, you know, up until that point, I was going to like run away with her and join the circus and be an airshow pilot too, and and fly aerobatics, and, and we would sort of continue our, our sort of partnership that way. And so I was really fortunate to have a circle of, of mentors and, and friends of my mom's. My, my dad had died several years earlier from glioblastoma, which is a very fatal type of brain cancer. It's been in the headlines a lot. But that circle of people really helped sort of build my interest again in journalism. And not 18 months later, I was an intern at CNN. And I was going to the University of Maryland, and I was sort of aiming at going to the journalism school. Um, it's a great program. And I remember being um, on the newsroom floor at CNN in Atlanta, and there was that, like, scene that played out, like, in broadcast news where someone's, like, running the tapes to the, <laughs> to the control room trying to make slot and trying to make deadline. And I was like, oh, my God, I found my people. There's something really poetic about it. And now being back here and working here, it's really incredible. I want to talk about CNN in a minute and your connection to Miles O'Brien, another famous pilot turned broadcaster. 
But thinking back to that fateful day, what do you remember and what do you think it changed in you or inspired in you both as a pilot and journalist? You know, as a pilot, I wasn't licensed yet and I had just soloed and, you know, it made me kind of a timid pilot and made me a bit fearful. And I was traumatized by the accident. My mom was flying aerobatics that day and essentially pulled out of a maneuver too low and crashed and burned. And um, that was horrific. It was, a, it was an awful, awful accident. And so as a pilot, you know, I still wanted to forward my flying. In a lot of ways, I didn't really have a choice. And, and I was sort of pushed by a lot of people in my life to sort of continue flying. I know I wanted to fly in my heart, but I only really remained in the traffic pattern for a while. I didn't really, I didn't really leave to sort of continue my training. And I had a instructor at the time, John Galderi, and he was like, you know, dude, you just got to finish this. And we sort of had to sit down and I, and I did. And, and the traffic pattern thing is like kind of a metaphor. Like I was just sort of stuck, like in this little sort of loop for a while and just needed to grow out of that to kind of transcend some of the, some of the trauma of that day. And, you know, as a journalist that day taught me a lot about reporting and you know, there was like a newspaper reporter there that day who asked me a couple of questions, but I was, it was such a, a whirlwind and I was loaded into a helicopter to sort of chase my mom who was still alive at the moment to the burn unit at UVA. And, you know, I didn't really talk to her very much, but she, she was just trying to do her job. A couple of days later, I went home to our home in Annapolis. The accident happened in Culpeper, Virginia, so kind of regionally relatively close. And there was a reporter there on our lawn, lived in a little townhouse community, and he his approach was not take no for an answer. And he had a stick mic in my face and there was a camera there and there was a live truck and it was just, it was not very human. And I, looking back, was sort of treated as a commodity. He was trying to get the story and I understand the deadline pressure now, having the professional experience I have. On the flip side of that, a few days later, I got a call from Steve Hartman at CBS News. And Steve's like a, you know, the most artful storyteller of this generation. Steve showed up at the memorial service um, with our permission, sort of hung back, talked to friends of my mom's, talked to members of our family, talked to people in the aviation community. She was so well known and did a very sort of kid glove kind of interview. But I was much more real with him because of his approach. And I was able to process it thanks to the the benefit of time, too. That was sort of two weeks after the fact. So it sort of shows that as a reporter, you win more bees with honey than with vinegar. And as a local reporter, and as a reporter now, on the national scale, I, I think a lot about those two different approaches. And it taught me that at your core, a reporter has to be a good human first to properly be a good storyteller. And to not treat people like you're going to the store picking up something. People are people. And that's, that's how you do a good story. Tell me about Miles. <laughs> Miles is my mentor, and he had a long career here at CNN, and um, I try to emulate my career after him. I was an intern for him in 2008, sort of like trying to sort of rebuild this trajectory of my life, and I was 20. And Miles really, for lack of a better term, took me under his wing, and pardon the pun, and I just wanted to be Miles. I remember watching him as a teen the day that the Columbia 
shuttle exploded and that that terrible disaster. Miles was on the air for a marathon of something like 16 hours. And, you know, he is an incredible journalist in that he can tell you things in the moment. He is a savant. He can inform the coverage because of his background and, and his aviation and space knowledge. And I just wanted to be him. And so I just sort of glommed onto him and tried to soak up everything I could from him. And he's been a remarkable mentor and uh, like a three-peat landlord of mine. And <laughs> he's always, he's kind of an uncle in my life. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. He's an incredible person and an incredible journalist who still turns out great stories on public television and beyond. So um, I'm just so fortunate to know him. You talked about doing local for a bit. You were in Harrisburg and then Washington, D.C., two markets that are geographically close, but very different. No doubt. No doubt. And Harrisburg often gets the top billing, but I was really living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And Lancaster is actually a very cool town and a cool downtown, and I had a great existence there. But, you know, it's very different. It's central Pennsylvania is very different um, from where I grew up in Annapolis, in between the D.C. and Baltimore bellways. And so I remember one of my first stories, I went out and covered a barn fire. And I remember coming back to the newsroom and the producer was like, what kind of what kind of farm was it? I'm like, oh, it was a farm. And uh, she's like, well, was it a dairy farm? We're like, what were they what were they doing there? I'm like, I have no clue. And so, you know, it was a really, really formative journalistic experience because I didn't have much of the way of street experience yet. And so, um, you know, the news director there, Dan O'Donnell, who I just texted with last night, was a great mentor of mine and took a chance on me. And that was a middle market, even though it sounds small. It was um, a mid-market TV station. There are a lot of people there who make their whole lives, um, their whole careers there. And so I got sucked up to that level of talent. And I feel really, really grateful for that all the time. And so I started that as a weekend one-man band. I was producing on the weekends, the 6 and 11 show. And then I would, after that, and then I would uh, report three nights a week, nightside with a photographer. Then I became a bureau reporter in York. And then I became the state capital government and politics investigative reporter. And so I did kind of every permutation of job there. And I couldn't have asked for a better experience. I stayed there for about six years. And I had a lot of different, different ways to grow there. And I was really, I would miss it a lot, actually. It was very fun. You arrived back at CNN in the early months of the pandemic. What was working live news like during such a unprecedented time with uncertainty, both for aviation and journalism itself? Yeah, you know, I think I got a really pure CNN experience because this is a really big place. And so there are a lot of shows, there are a lot of mouths to feed in, in that way from different content, different types of stories. And so, you know, I was kind of working from home, but also traveling. This is April of 2020, and the airlines had pretty much all been shuttered, essentially. No one was really flying at the moment. And so one of the first stories was go out on an airliner and see what it's like. And the airlines had their own mass mandates in place. The other, uh, there was no federal mass mandate in place. And it was a really incredible time to cover this beat because nothing had sucked the wind out of the room when it came to travel like the pandemic ever before in, in modern times. I mean, the, the industry was hit pretty hard by 9-11, but not near as bad. We're talking airlines bleeding tens of millions of dollars each day. It was a very interesting trial by fire, and I um, am pretty uh, grateful for the opportunity, but it was tough to talk to all these people on the air and then like anchors and then never having met them. So it was sort of a backwards experience, and, and I didn't even know where the front door was to the place, and it was a really important time for the beat, too. And so I remember 
saying to my girlfriend, you know, what's going to happen when to the beat when the pandemic is over and and there's they're not interested in me anymore. There, there's <laughs> there's been no shortage of news, and I love the beat more than anything. It's super dynamic, and I just I couldn't be more thrilled to be able to cover it day to day. It certainly has its highs, and no pun intended. Although I feel like this interview is going to have a lot of aviation puns as we go along. But it has terrible lows as well, and I think to the Boeing Max crashes and things like that in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about handling those highly charged accidents, incidents, and things like that? I think journalism learned a lot. Aviation journalism learned a lot from the Max incidents because we didn't really understand the level of coziness between the FAA and large corporate entities like Boeing, and that was that's sort of a through line, I think, in. Um, a lot of other stories that are taking place right now, too, but um, it's a reminder to exercise a high level of critical thinking when it comes to these kind of stories and ask the right questions and press regulators and, and press manufacturers to really know the essence of something. And it, it taught us the importance of maintaining touch with people on the ground and organized labor. You know, there were unions and, and and members of the pilot corps sort of flagging that this MCAS system that was at the essence of the MAX disasters was going to be a problem. And so that was a story that really started before um, my time at CNN, but continued when I started at CNN. And it's really been very formative. You know, we've not in the U.S. had many aviation disasters in the last 20 years. The last fatal U.S commercial plane crash was in 2009 of any significant fatality, the Colgan air crash. And that changed regulations really significantly. And, and, you know, to cover a disaster like the max, which there were two of, and to cover it through sort of multiple different episodes was, was I think very educational for journalists like me and, and many others too. It's, it was a really serious charge against Boeing and, and it, taught me a lot, who, somebody who wasn't covering the FAA day-to-day about how the FAA works. I want to push on that a little bit. I mean, as a pilot and instructor, you appreciate that part of what makes aviation so safe is a just safety culture that's built on the concept of blame-free sharing of data. And yet in the mainstream media, we do sometimes see this rush by others to try to engage interviewees and speculation before bodies like the NTSB have done their jobs. So, how do you handle that at CNN? You can tell a lot about an incident, and we've seen this in the close call incidents and the string of those through the beginning of this year very quickly. And I think that we're trying to sort of convey to folks smart data without being speculative. And so, you know, the good news is I'm somebody who's armed with the technical knowledge to be able to read these sort of things. And, you know, another big compliment to Miles is that he's always been able to talk about disasters while making making people smarter in the moment and not being speculative. So, you know, in a lot of times, you in a lot of ways, you can take a little bit of data and rule out something. And that is the sort of the way that you sort of teach people like, okay, it's probably not this because we know this. It's probably not this because we know this. The weather was good. That's not an issue. Like, you know, just sort of run down the list and then sort of hone it in for folks. And also, there's a lot of journalism in that, too. And so there are plenty of people in my Rolodex, thankfully, from a lifetime in aviation to people to call and say, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And and what is this airplane like to fly? And what is this procedure like? And there's a lot that one does not see. And I'm not saying I'm I'm some all-knowing expert, but 
sometimes you just got to be able to call someone and say, hey, like, what does this mean? And, you know, of course we slow roll things and wait for all of the data to come out, but it is 2023 and there's ADSB tracking of pretty much every airplane in the air, open source and beyond. So it's a pretty incredible time. And, you know, you can sort of help folks understand a story better. And I think knowledge is really, the data is really powerful for folks. And so we try to bring that into stories when we can. Even non-fatal stories can be tough to convey in detail. I'm thinking about the Southwest Airlines meltdown from months ago. Clearly the aftermath of that makes for strong visuals, but do you feel you can do justice to the root causes without going too deep in the weeds for a mainstream audience? Yeah, I mean, I think that the best thing that we can do for an audience is to sort of shine light on issues. And there have been sort of systemic issues at the airlines and the FAA that have led to some of these meltdowns. The Southwest incident was different because that was its own internal issue. Um, and they were sort of outpaced by a weather problem that got compounded by the the datedness of their systems. And so in the moment, I think we have to report on the impact. That's the big thing. And then it's the gear shifts to the fallout. Why the heck did this happen? And so, you know, I think we can do a good way of making things not too in the weeds. I try and look at my job as I'm a flight instructor for fun, but I sort of feel like I'm a flight instructor on a different plane. When I'm talking to people on television, I'm trying to take them from the unknown and really technical topics to the known. And so, you know, the, the danger of that as a reporter is, is sometimes in the moment you can oversimplify things and by oversimplifying things, you can make things wrong. But here's one example, like the 5G issues where the FAA was very concerned about the wavelength of 5G cell towers interfering with equipment onboard commercial airliners, you can really sort of distillate it to this problem with radar altimeters. Now, the average person doesn't know what a radar altimeter is and probably will never interface with one. Frankly, I've never really used one very much because it's not something that's in general aviation airplanes like iFly. But the simplification of that is like, you know, this is a critical piece of equipment that pilots need to use in bad weather to know how high they are above the ground. A in-the-weeds commercial airline pilot out there flying every day might say, well, that's like a bit too simple, but it's still true. And so you just kind of have to sort of walk this tightrope of simple and accessible, but also something that is still accurate. On that topic, aviation benefits from a robust and global trade media ecosystem that serves more of a controlled circulation insider audience. How do these industry-centric media outlets from where you sit contribute to the discourse of aviation coverage? You know, we operate at different speeds, but I think that um, the industry media really drives a lot of the conversation just because they know the landscape so much better. We just have different audiences. So they're um, sort of broadcasting or narrowcasting to an aviation or transportation audience. We're broadcasting to a very wide audience. And so the challenge is kind of the same. How do you take technical topics and make them interesting to a normal audience? And I think that, you know, the one example is the trade media has covered these close call incidents. We've seen six or seven uh, investigated by the NTSB since the start of this year. There may be closer to 10 under investigation by the FAA. 
And, you know, the trade media is really focused on why is this happening. In the moment, we're sort of focusing on this is what it is. And ultimately, there's an intersection, but it just takes a little bit of time. So sometimes, you know, we are on the air right away when something happens. And, you know, I look at the trade media and I read plenty of other outlets as a correspondent. That's part of my job to to see what the coverage is. And so it's a big ecosystem, but I think there's a lot of symbiosis. Sometimes we are driving what the public finds interesting and sometimes the trade media is is driving what should be important in the industry and and how to sort of perceive that coverage. And so, you know, I think you can't have one without the other for sure. We've talked a lot about aviation, but your beat has included other forms of transportation such as rail. How does your extensive experience as a pilot and flight instructor help when you're covering something like DC's trouble plague metro rail system or the recent East Palestine train derailment? You know, the one big benefit that I have in aviation is that I have a fair amount of access. And so, you know, I have been able to fly like large transport category flight simulators and I can say like, this is what the max is like and and that kind of thing. I'm probably never going to be able to operate a freight train and I'm probably never going to be uh, in the train operator's seat of a, a metro car. But, you know, I covered metro in local news at channel nine wusa here in dc and that's a really important local story and all these transportation stories come back to people and we just rely on it so much but you know it's kind of the same it's a lot of the same terminology the safety culture is the same there are regulatory bodies that are pretty similar and some are actually the same the ntsb investigates not only aviation but rail and pipeline and automotive issues and beyond so you know, there's there's a lot of overlap, and I'm sort of grateful for that because, you know, these two things are both in my portfolio, but, you know, even in the, in the moment, I remember covering a, a derailment in um, Missouri, and I could just say on television right away, the NTSB will look at this, they'll look at the track condition, they'll look at the weather, they'll look at the recorder, recorders in the, in the train itself, um, and so it's very similar to covering aviation and aviation incidents. There, there are a lot, there's a lot of overlap. Two more quick questions. The National Press Club is known as the world's foremost organization for journalists, but many of our members are professional communicators. How can PR practitioners be helpful and not a hindrance from your perspective? I hear from a lot of PR pros on a daily basis, and I think the best ones are ones who pay attention to what we're covering and the types of stories that we're covering. Those are typically the best pitches and the best PR pros know how to lean into the moment. So sometimes we might not be interested in something that is sort of far off because CNN is so very much driven by the moment and breaking news and spot news. But there is a lot of opportunity to enterprise, but it still has to come back to the news of the day. It still has to come back to a theme that is affecting everyone's lives. And so you know, right now I'm working on a story on the air traffic controller shortage, which will impact flights and cancellations and delays this summer. So if there was a pitch on something that was sort of more tangential to that, it would be hard to sell. But I think that, um, you know, we're always interested in things that sort of are the next story that we'll be covering. And so I think, you know, PR professionals who can sort of crystal ball it and say, well, it's going to be covering summer travel we should be pitching them things that are, are related to summer travel. And, you know, I have a really great relationship with a lot of PR professionals at, at different organizations and agencies and, and companies. And it's really, you know, we rely on one another. And I just appreciate 
honesty and um, the ability to know what this outlet is interested in and what journalists are interested in. And I especially appreciate people who've been there, who've, who've covered the news too. The jobs are, I think, are actually pretty similar. On that topic, in terms of transparency, you've been on the transportation beat long enough to spot trends, whether it's working with industry sources or government ones. What kind of evolution have you perceived and how does that impact what we see on CNN? I think the big evolution is that national media has seen that transportation is a very important beat and it affects people's lives in a huge way. It's easy for Washington stories to just be under the dome, but this is something that is policy that really impacts people. And I think the shift has been to, like I said earlier, like I was worried I was going to run out of news to cover. There's been no shortage. And I think that that is sort of due in part to the media really paying attention to transportation more and how it impacts people. And so that's the shift that I have perceived. And, you know, I'm somebody who pounds their fists on the podium and says we should be covering this because this impacts this many people. But I think generally the media sort of finally realized this is a huge beat and we can't miss these kind of stories. Pete, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Adam. Pete Montine is a CNN correspondent based here in Washington, D.C. You can follow him on CNN as well as on Twitter at Pete Montine. I'm Adam Cano. Thanks again for listening. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com. 